At the age of 10, he was able to get you to buy lemons, oranges, and chiclets, even though you didn't need them, including the fact that after four chews, the gum didn't even have any flavor. That's <laughs> persuasiveness skills. You heard of that? Yep, absolutely. He also was able to change the peso to the dollar and the dollar to the peso in a fluctuating global market. And so my dad brought so much to this space, but most of us would not have been willing to see it because we're looking through this lens of building background where kids come with gaps that we have to fill rather than gifts that we need to leverage. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that focuses on topics related to English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. I'm your host, Steve Sofronis. How is lesson planning directly related to dismantling or supporting systems of oppression? Why is it so important to recognize that approaching education from a monolingual lens has not served many of our students, and what can we do to change it? How does the C6 Biliteracy Instructional Framework help educators design learning opportunities that are culturally supportive rather than culturally destructive? We discuss these questions and much more in our conversation with Dr. Jose Medina. Dr. Medina is the founder and chief educational advocate for Dr. Jose Medina Educational Solutions. Prior to establishing this consulting firm, Dr. Medina served as research scientist and director of dual language and bilingual education at the Center for Applied Linguistics in Washington, D.C. Jose provides dual language technical assistance, professional development, and job embedded support to dual language programs across the United States and globally. He is a former dual language school principal and district leader who has also served as an administrator, educator, and advocate at the elementary, middle, and high school levels. Dr. Medina is a co-author of the third edition and widely used Guiding Principles for Dual Language Education and the creator of the C6 Biliteracy Instructional Framework, which we discuss at length during this interview. Dr. Jose Medina, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really excited to be with you all, Steve. And obviously, I, I love the organization that you um, that you serve in. So I'm excited that we get a chance to finally collaborate. Gracias por la invitación. De nada. And I think the key word there is finally. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I'm familiar with your work. Um, I've spent a lot of time looking at the uh, C6 Biliteracy Instructional Framework and looking at some videos. I am by no means an expert. You are the expert. That's why you are here. And I'm hoping I'm just able to ask you the right questions to deliver the audience with some great information that they can use. So during this conversation, we're going to discuss how lesson planning can work to promote social justice uh, and lead to progress on anti-bias and anti-racism work. Definitely a heavy topic and one that some people might be thinking, how do I do that in my lesson planning? Um, and in order to make that easier for the audience, we are going to use what I just mentioned, which is the C6 Biliteracy Instructional Framework, um, which you're a part of creating to kind of frame that in an easier way. So just kind of a, a heads up to listeners there. So let's start by talking generally about that framework for people who may not be familiar with it. Like I said, you had a big part in creating it. Um, how did it come about and how is it sort of being implemented now kind of in general terms? Because we'll dive in more specifically later. Sure. So um, one of my areas of expertise is focusing on biliteracy instructional practices, specifically in the dual language classroom. And so um, prior to 2018, we had a lot of resources that are awesome and that components that, that we should be utilizing and leveraging as we lesson plan. 
But a lot of those resources were really conceptualized through a monolingual, monocultural, um, kind of heteronormative, patriarchal lens of, of lesson planning, because that's why schools were created in the United States to promote that middle income kind of white perspective. Um, additionally, um, as one of the co-authors of the Guiding Principles for Dual Language Education, which is the resource that is utilized to implement dual language programming and continuously improve such programming throughout the United States and abroad, I really felt like it was imperative that um, dual language teachers had a lesson planning framework that specifically um, aligned with the things that they needed to be doing in terms of serving their emergent bilingual multilingual students in the classroom. And so two big things. One, um, the C6 by literacy framework aligns with the guiding principles for dual language education third edition, which was released in um, late 2017, early 2018. Um, and so it includes and is aligned to all of the latest by literacy research. The second piece is that um, one of the goals of dual language is sociocultural competence and critical consciousness, really allowing our kids to be less of a hot mess than we are, because, you know, we're a big hot mess. And so we want the kids to uh, be bilingual and biliterate, but more importantly, to be bilingual, biliterate, and are able to acknowledge their own privilege, to be critically self-reflective, and to be of service to others. And so we knew um, that that piece was missing. And so that's the second piece of the C6 by literacy framework. How do we engage in this work? and really begin to chip away at systems of oppression that exist in all as aspects of our life, but specifically in education. And so um, that, that, those are the really the two big reasons why the C6 came to be. The, the overarching theme for, for me, as I was kind of gathering the folks that were going to give me input as this was created and conceptualized was that lesson planning is in fact a political act. And if we lesson plan through that old um, perspective, that monolingual, monocultural perspective, then we, in essence, support and maintain the systems of oppression. And so that's very different for somebody to say, you know what, our lesson planning, planning um, either supports or dismantles systems of oppression is, is a new idea. And we really wanted to make sure that that, that was what was driving everything that that we were including into the framework. Yeah, a little follow-up question there too. I mean, there's a lot there and I appreciate everything that you just mentioned. That's a great sort of starter for us. But two things stuck out to me. One, a lot of things, but I'll, I'll focus on two. One is the idea of sociocultural competence. We've talked a lot on this podcast about cultural responsive teaching practices. Uh, and there's been, if I'm honest, like a hodgepodge of different ways to go about doing it. Uh, I, I, I'm looking at, you know, looking at this framework, it seems like this is one way that you can actually approach that from uh, probably a, a stronger lens, a way that you can actually get at that more deliberately. Um, and secondly, the other sort of really powerful thing that you said here, and I'd like to dive in a little bit more, you know, you said lesson planning is a political act. And I'm sure that there are probably some people listening to that and some people who hear what you have to say and would push back on that. Um, what, what would you say to those people who are, you know, regardless of what side they're on and where they think, whether they're teaching dual language or they're teaching, you know, in a traditional kind of school, I mean, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that because that's that's definitely like a very strong statement. Absolutely. So I'll tackle the first um, kind of point that you made in terms of sociocultural competence. So just for the, the listeners that may not have a working definition, sociocultural competence, especially when we're talking about um, emergent bilingual students in dual language programming, is about seeing the similarities in each other, but also seeing the differences in each other. 
and seeing the differences as ways to connect rather than obstacles to overcome. And so that's a definition that even kids in pre-K um, all the way you know, through 12th grade are learning because they have to be the owners of that goal of dual language. Um, really engaging in thought, thought uh, about privilege and what privilege we bring as students as well as educators into the space and how do we leverage that privilege so that we can create access to it for those that don't have that privilege. And I want you to know that you'd be very happy to know that uh, and understand that this kind of lesson planning is happening all over the country and internationally, which is kind of amazing to know that, that it's having this impact and that it is actually happening. Um, lesson planning is a political act. So one of the first things that we need to acknowledge as um, educators, and I've been a, a teacher, I've been a principal, an assistant principal, a director, I have worked at the Center for Applied Linguistics in DC, working on, on research and professional development. Like we have to acknowledge that US schools were in fact, you know, conceptualized to promote that white middle income perspective of living and breeding. Like that's the first piece that we have to acknowledge. And once we actually get to that understanding, then how is it that I have been maintaining that perspective of education? And the bottom line is that black indigenous students of color have not been served well in US schools. And I can have a, you know, a conversation with whoever wants to push back on that because that is the reality. Um, we haven't served student um, groups of color. In fact, we've marginalized them. Um, our language learners, our students with special education needs, um, students of color really have not been well supported um, in US schools. And so that's why our team really um, facilitates professional learning around this idea that if we stay um, quiet, if we lesson plan the way we always have, then we are in fact supporting the oppression. And it's so interesting that you asked that question, Steve, because you know, educators have been changing their um, you know, social media icons to the Black Lives Matter icon or the Black Square. So much of what we do in US schools in terms of inclusion or multiculturalism or sociocultural competence or critical consciousness is performative. Like, so you changed the icon on your Facebook page. What did you do in addition to that? Like, how are you chipping away at those systems in the classroom? Um, and, and so that becomes the big question. Yeah, you know, and as always, these, these issues are, uh, are a microcosm in schools or a microcosm of the issues that are happening outside, um, which I think is a really interesting way to frame it as well. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. I just wanted to to delve a little deeper into that. And we could have a whole conversation for a long, long time about that, but I want to move, push forward here uh, in the time we have. Um, so you, you, you mentioned the idea of taking a monolingual approach to lesson planning. Um, you know, before we dive into the actual C's that are a part of the C6 framework, how does, can you delve a little deeper into how the C6 framework provides the equity and social justice element in lesson planning to kind of take away from that monolingual approach? I'd just like to get a a little bit of a primer on that before we dive into what the framework actually involves. Sure. So it started with the three goals of dual language, which are the foundation of the guiding principles for dual language education. But as I was serving in school districts, one of the things that kept coming up was the fact that um, this is not just important for our emergent bilingual multilingual students in dual language programs, but in fact, 
this is the kind of lesson planning that needs to be happening in every single classroom. Because although grounded in the work of um, biliteracy instruction, we can all engage in culturally sustaining um, pedagogy. Um, and so it becomes more than just being culturally responsive. It's about actually acknowledging the fact that we have screwed up and that for many years, we've not lesson planned in the way in which we really empower students um, to take ownership of their learning, but also value all that they bring into this space. And so really that's what the C6 um, ended up becoming. Um, as we worked on what is the research that's available, what are the things that need to be included? Um, each one of the six C's actually is about chipping away at those systems that have oppressed and marginalized um, certain student community groups. Yeah, and you know what's interesting is as you were speaking just now, and I was thinking a lot about the cultural responsiveness piece and the difference between that and socio cultural competence and the work that you're doing. And I just, I just jotted down cultural responsiveness again. I jotted down asset-based learning and I jotted down growth mindset. Three terms that we throw around quite a bit um, and maybe we're, it's top of mind for us. But again, I just, it, there doesn't seem to be a, like, a, like a, a place to put a shelf to put those on when you're actually creating that, which is why I'm excited to actually get into the framework and talk about the pieces of it that I think will allow us to kind of frame those a little bit better. So are you ready to dive in and talk about all these C's? I am. I, I, I forgot to mention one thing, if you, if you would allow me, Steve, because um, one of the sayings that, that, that our team usually um, offers when we are engaging in conversations with educators is that the C6 is about creating this madre in the name of equidad and social justice. And so for those uh, listeners that don't know what this madre is, it, it's disruption. And we chose, I chose specifically to um, bring the team that I lead um, under that kind of statement, because first and foremost, it is about disruption. And second of all, the statement is in both languages, which just irks so many educators, including dual language educators and bilingual educators, um, to hear someone like me, who is a leader in the field, actually speaking in los dos idiomas, because that's the way my mente functions. And that in itself is causing this madre. And I, I, I have had some teachers that have said, oh, well, that's not a word that we use. And I remind them, there's no such thing as right or wrong language. There's just context. And in the context in which we are disrupting educational systems for the betterment and the support of students is through this madre. And so I just wanted to make sure that I said that out loud. <laughs> I'm a big it. mess. I'm a big mess, Steve, but a mess that's working on it, verdad? And so that's <laughs> the good news. No, I think it's great. I think disruption is the key of every, uh, you know, the key to everything, especially right now as we deal with all of the disruption that's just happening sort of without us wanting it to happen. If we don't disrupt things, nothing's going to change. And I'll just say for the record, you know, I started off, I was a Spanish major in college, um, spent some time studying abroad, found myself in the classroom quite by accident at 22 years old, working in an urban school district with lots of students from uh, the Dominican Republic and other places as well. Uh, and and being taught to teach proper Spanish and then being confronted with all these students whose Spanish wasn't quote unquote proper, I learned real quick to value um, you know the language that they were speaking and and for us to sort of give and take. But boy, it was hard because you're so, you're taught in a way, and this is why I'm excited to talk about this framework. As a teacher, you're taught in a way to teach the way that you are taught, and the way that I was taught language was wrong, and it took me very very a very short time uh, to realize that. So I'm yeah. glad that you mentioned that. 
Absolutely. All right. So let's dive in. And, and, and you know, the, the purpose of this, uh, the people, listeners will know that, you know, uh, we're going to sort of talk a little bit about it and we're hoping to inspire you to actually take the next step to take a look at this. Um, you have lots of videos online that we'll link to as well that will help people with this as well. But let's dive in. So the first C um, is create <clears throat> um, and it deals with planning for language and culture. So it seems that this provides kind of the foundation for the rest of the framework. Um, talk to us about how it should play out. You're thinking about this, create, what is it, what, what is it that you do at this point in time? Sure. So it's the, the first C is, is really the foundation of it all. And, and it really comes to students um, owning their content, language, and culture objectives, their learning targets. And so if you were to make a comparison with other frameworks for lesson planning in terms of um, through that monolingual perspective that we try to add things to so that it would be more culturally sustaining for our emergent bilingual students. This is the one that most people are going to understand. As teachers, we definitely um, know how to unpack a standard. It's what we feel comfortable with. And so that's that content objective, that content learning target. The language objective our team found doesn't feel as comfortable. You know, teachers don't feel as, as um, ready to um, promote language learning targets. And then the culture learning target definitely might be new for some folks. So the way that we explain it in our professional learning, um, I actually was leading a session this morning with a school district in the Chicago area. And um, is that, was, is that, I have to interrupt, is that Maywood District 89 by any chance? Yeah, I was hanging out with my friends from District 89 this morning. Juan yes. Corona and Maribel Taboada, those. I love them. Yes, yes, They're yes. phenomenal. But shout out to them. They're on our In This Together docuseries. Yeah, they're so cool and, and brave because um, they really are tackling um, lesson planning through this lens, which is kind of amazing. But um, I was sharing with them that most people don't understand that uh, a content objective is behind closed doors. And so if we think of a standard, the standard is behind lock and key, and there's a big, heavy um, metal door covering it, you know, protecting that standard. What the language objective does is it's the key or the bomb that blows the doors open. It's what creates the pathway via listening, speaking, reading, writing. And then we have a fifth language domain that we often forget, and that's metalinguistic awareness, which is um, students and anyone who's multilingual is immediately going to make connections between the languages represented in their one language repertoire. And so that plus one is really, really important. And that's kind of eye-opening for teachers when they realize, I tell them, you know what? If you are creating content objectives, but you're not creating language objectives that are student-owned, then in fact, we have become the oppressors because that language objective is what creates access to grade-level standards, regardless of how much language or not I bring into the space. Even if I'm not able to language in English or in Spanish or in Portuguese or in Mandarin, I still deserve access to grade level standards. And as an educator, it is my job via the four plus one, via this listening, speaking, reading, writing, and metalinguistic awareness to plan so that every child can access that grade level standard, um, which is kind of eye-opening for a lot of teachers. The culture learning target then becomes the why. So the content is the what, the language objective is the how kids will access the standard via the four plus one then the culture objective gives it context. And um, the culture objective is what really allows us to tackle some of those um, issues that we're so nervous to, to address in the classroom. 
Um, this morning, we talked about the four ways that you can write a culture learning target. One of them is amplifying the voices of marginalized communities. So not simply um, addressing books or assignments that deal with um, those that look like us, live like us, pray like us, love like us, but really going beyond that. The second way to write a culture learning target um, is to connect to the child and or to the real world. And I'm not talking about just connecting to the child, but really valuing the entire child, not just those pieces that fit within this monolingual, monocultural perspective of schooling. The third way to write a language objective is to focus on cross-linguistic work or translanguaging spaces, really valuing all of the language que, que trae el estudiante a la clase, ¿verdad? No solamente las partes que nos gustan, but really valuing all. And then the fourth way to write a culture learning target is to um, address the idea that academic and social language are equals. Because if I say pos, pos is gorgeous. Pos is as gorgeous as pues. Because it is mine. It is a part of my community. It is a part of my home. And my mom says, pues, I know that no one's going to tell me that my mom is wrong. And if I say parquear, it's just as gorgeous as parking and estacionamiento or estacionar. And so that's the fourth way to um, write a culture learning target. I think that's what's been really helpful, Steve, that we want to do these things, but we've never had a vehicle to do it. And so the culture learning target provides that initial step during the, the objective writing process, the objective planning process to actually um, go there. Yeah, to actually use that key or that bomb, whatever you need. <laughs> I exactly, love that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's great. That's a really great breakdown. Um, you know, there's a lot to sort of unpack there. And again, like you can go and look at all this information and really dive in. But you gave us a really nice... Um, I think, I think a really important, actually, clarification and addition to, again, sort of the four, reading, writing, listening, speaking, adding, metalinguistic, um, and translanguaging, um, and culture and language, which can seem very, very daunting to people. And that's one of the first kind of things where people back off and say, I can't, I'm not an expert in culture. I mean, I used to say that as a Spanish teacher, how am I going to teach uh, you know, AP Spanish literature to students when I have, I, I'm not an expert on all of these cultures and I'm certainly not an expert on all of these languages, but a lot of it is just bringing in the knowledge of the students um, to, to, to sort of, to sort of connect that. But again, that's hard to do without a framework. Yeah. I think that's what it offers. And as a world language teacher, um, I know that, that you obviously know that, that, that field, um, I want you to know that world language teachers are also using the C6 by literacy framework. And it's never made sense to me that as we're teaching language and engaging in language um, instruction and learning, that we wouldn't allow kids to make connections to the other parts of language that are already present in their repertoire. And so all of that is, is really um, kind of revolutionary to some school um, educators and, and leaders. Yeah, hundred percent. I think you know I, I talk about my world language experience a lot, just because it's the majority of my career. But I, it was—it's always strange to me that there's not more of a connection between the two, the three really worlds. I, I, I wish there were, um, and it seems like it's getting better. So it's nice to know that that there are world language teachers using this framework because I can definitely see how it would fit. Yeah. So second C, connect, um, recognizing and respecting students' cultural and linguistic uh, repertoires. Um, I've heard you say that this goes beyond building background, which I'm guilty of talking, well, not guilty. I mean, it's, I talk about it all the time, but I don't think I go deeply enough. So I'd like to go a little bit deeper. How should educators uh, go about learning what they need to know about their students so that they can then take an asset-based approach to what they bring to the table? I mean, that was always difficult for me. I could figure out who the students are sort of, you know, 
quickly and and but to dive really deeply and understand exactly where they're coming from especially with all the different personalities and different skills they bring to the table how do we go about doing that how does that second seat connect uh, help us with that sure so i think it, it's a couple of things that you mentioned when we first started i mean it's a it's a mind shift it's a mindset uh, modification it's about being culturally sustaining rather than culturally destructive so there are three pieces that we tackle with that second c connect um, valuing the entire student schema and language repertoire. Um, the second piece is embracing translanguaging research, which is so scary to so many folks. And then the third piece is cross-linguistic work, bridge level one, bridge level two. Um, and what does that look like in the classroom? And I think that the reason teachers leave so empowered is because we do start each one of the C's with big picture, but then start digging down so that we know as a practitioner, what is it going to look like and feel like for me? And so that's, I think, what has been so wonderful about um, engaging folks in this in this professional learning. Um, why building background? I love building background research. I think it's imperative that we give value to seminal research. But at the end of the day, when we say things like, well, the student doesn't um, have the background to be successful in school, then I would posit that maybe it's perhaps we've been looking through the wrong lens. Because when we say that kids have achievement gaps or they don't bring what they need to be successful in schools, that's because we're looking at schooling through a white middle-income lens. And so I say, screw that. Like, we need to go beyond that. And so I'll give you my dad as an example. My dad um, is from, my parents are from Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua, Mexico. At the age of 10, he stopped working and he was selling lemons and oranges and chiclets you know, the ones with the four little pieces of gum yeah. on the bridge between Mexico and the United States. And so I always ask if my dad at the age of 10 years old had shown up to your classroom, would you have been like, oh my God, I can't believe that I just got a newcomer from Mexico. Like, why am I so lucky? My principal must love me. I mean, I'm going to get to co-facilitate instruction and, and make connections between the awesomeness that this <laughs> child brings into the space because I know that he knows a lot of content. It's just my job to help him language it in English. I mean, I, just, I, I must be lighting candles very, very well because I get all of the newcomers or are we the teacher that says, damn, I just got another one right before state assessment. Because if that's you, then that's a reflection piece because my dad is and was awesome. At the age of 10, he was able to get you to buy lemons, oranges, and chiclets, even though you didn't need them including the fact that after four chews, the gum didn't even have any flavor. That's <laughs> persuasiveness skills. That? Yep, absolutely. He also was able to change the peso to the dollar and the dollar to the peso in a fluctuating global market. And so my dad brought so much to this space, but most of us would not have been willing to see it because we're looking through this lens of building background where kids come with gaps that we have to fill rather than gifts that we need to leverage. And so that is huge. Let me push back for a second, just for the sake sure. of argument. So is it that is it that we're not willing to do it or is it that we don't have the skills or the ability or whatever it takes to recognize, or are we too busy to recognize that your dad brings all these skills that you just so eloquently and clearly outlined and that are a hundred percent true, but what is the barrier I mean, what are the barriers that are, that are, I mean, is it that we're sort of <clears throat> looking at things from this monolingual way? Is it that um, teachers are super busy and don't have time? Is it that some teachers just, I mean, how, how do we break through that? Sure. I think the biggest piece is that you know what you know when you know it. 
I always say that you know what you know when you know it, and then you know it, so you better do more, ¿verdad? Because at the end of the day, this is not the type of conversation that was happening in our teacher preparation programs. 100% right, yep. At, at all. And so I think that once folks have the information, then they're like, you know, I've never really thought about it that way. We also have the systems that we function in. I mean, assessments are huge in our U.S. schooling system. And so teachers are also having to produce in terms of getting kids to do well on assessments. And so I think that that's a piece of it. But I'm glad to report that there are schools all over this country that are really engaging in that conversation and um, and moving forward because that's where um, leveraging the whole linguistic repertoire comes in and understanding that it's not about solely English, but it's about the fact that we're the only country that sees English monolingualism as equal to patriotism, which is crazy because you know that the world is a beautiful multilingual world from the moment that kids are born. And so all of those pieces really are tackled in this second C. Um, teachers learn how to value the student, but also how to make connections so that kids are able to language what they learned in both program languages or in languages that are perhaps not even represented in the classroom. Yeah. And by the way, I'm asking you these, I guess you can sit them kind of challenging questions because it is the one that I was, when I was reading through it, and again, I'm no expert, it was the one that I was most interested in. And the one that if I had time, and if I was a teacher, I think I'd spend a lot of time with quite possibly because it was a weakness of mine um, and probably weakness of many as well. Um, all right, so the third C is collaborate, um, and that is um, sort of taking the ownership of learning from teacher, the teacher and transferring it to students, something which I've heard a lot about, you know, in the last uh, really decade. I mean, that's something that's been going on in all classrooms have been trying to happen. I'm not sure how successful it's been. Um, so we talk like, you know, in my circles, we used to talk a lot about taking a facilitator approach, being a coach, uh, not being the sage on the stage. Um but, you know, taking it to sort of dual language teachers, how do you recommend they work together to ensure they're embracing this type, this part of the framework? Because they really need to work together to do this. This can't happen sort of in a silo. Right. So um, I, we, I want you to know that our team really engaged in conversations around Pablo, Pablo Freire and pedagogy of the oppressed, pedagogia del oprimido, because really um, he is one of the the folks that, that really push this idea that most of us in education, including myself, Steve, because when I started school, I wanted to grade and I wanted the red pen and to give tests, which I think is why many of us become educators. But um, he really pushes against this idea of a banking system where kids are like empty piggy banks and that we as teachers are somehow going to deposit information. I think that all six C's give us ways to do that. So for example, with the objectives, I should be able to walk into any classroom, whether in a monolingual setting, dual language, transitional bilingual, pre-K-12 or university setting and ask a student, hey, what's your content objective? And then you should be able to say the what. What's your language objective? That's how we're gonna access the grade level standard with a four plus one. And what's your culture learning target? That's really giving it context and we're trying to be better people. Like I want you to know that there are four-year-olds that can actually do that. In the connect, which is the second C that we just talked about, we should be able to ask the kids, uh, what language domain are you working on right now? And the student at four, five, eight, 12 years old should be able to answer. They should also know how language is added to their linguistic repertoire. We don't have L1 and L2. Like that 
is the language that we use, but all of us have one language repertoire and languages are represented within that one language repertoire. But what translanguaging does for us, it, it lets kids know that it's about mobilizing the language that they need based on that context. That too is giving kids ownership. And so every single one of the C's is about that specific ownership um, because I think that's when kids truly become facilitators of of the instruction with teachers, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's the one sometimes that teachers have the hardest time kind of letting go of, like that sort of control, you know? And I I always tell the story of, uh, you know, I had, like many teachers, I had many different evaluators. And the main difference between the evaluators that I had in my sort of foreign language classroom was that there were ones who came in and saw the chaos that was going on in my classroom as me being completely out of control and what's going on in this room. And there were others who saw the chaos as learning and there's something good going on in here. But those are the ones who had to dive a little bit deeper, ask questions, find out what was going on. I was often in situations where I had to kind of make my own go of it. I wasn't really given this kind of framework. I wish I had something like this at the time. And so I certainly made a lot of mistakes, but it was always my goal to kind of transfer the ownership of learning onto students. And I guess I make that point because so much of this depends on leadership, right? It really does. I mean, um, Teachers want a leader that can walk into the classroom and say, you know what, I really liked that you were cross-linguistically connecting with a kid, Steve. The bridge level two, focus on the articulos. Oh my God. And then get the hell out. Like that's what we want <laughs> for an administrator, you know? And 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 that's that's not always the case. But again, good news. There are um, district and campus leaders that have gone through the C6 training who are actively decolonizing the scope and sequence at the district level principals that can talk about translanguaging, assistant principals who go into um, special education IEP meetings, ready to advocate for um, biliteracy connections for the kids that that deserve that um, as they receive special support. So it's happening. It's just, um, we're fighting a battle that's going to take some time because the systems that really oppress have been in place forever and ever and ever. Yeah. Conversation for another time, but I'll tease it. I wonder if everything that's going on with the shift to remote learning and changing mindsets and everything else is going to help that cause. Hold that thought. But give me sure. if you want to give me a quick reaction, I'd love to hear I can it. Give a quick reaction. I can tell you that um, teachers are successfully implementing all of these strategies in remote learning um, because COVID-19... Um, it doesn't impact instruction, whether in a monolingual setting or in a dual language setting. We still need to be able to connect with kids. And I want you to know that um, even in remote instruction, there are kids that can define translanguaging at the age of five years old and tell you the difference between metalinguistic awareness and translanguaging at that age because they own their learning. And some of yeah. the some of the listeners might be like, oh, my God, what the heck is translanguaging? Let me pull out my phone. But yet there are four and five year olds that can define it. And maybe just as importantly, if not more importantly, they're doing it on a day-to-day basis, you know, and then they're defining it. Yeah. They get pretty it. Cool. Um, okay. Uh, fourth, communicate. So facilitating authentic student-to-student communication, which can be challenging and perhaps even more challenging now with remote and hybrid learning. Um, I, I, you know, I've seen a lot of sort of attempts at this um, that lead to these kind of contrived conversations. I've definitely been guilty of, of putting those together in the, in the world language classroom that lack the sort of authenticity that you describe. Um, so first, if you could tell us what you mean by authentic communication, and then take us through maybe how we create some systems to be able to implement them. 
Sure. So authentic um, student um, interaction can be with partners, but it can be with text. It can be in writing. It can be um, authentic interaction with a graphic organizer, with a music video, with a, a song, with a tech app. Um, and so it's really about kids being able to take their content learning and fully manipulating it so that they're able to understand it and language it in both program languages. One of the pieces that I've already started talking about was the four plus one. So this, I know that the audience can't see it or the listeners can't see this, but there's um, a map that I'm sharing with you that has the five icons. If you go into schools that are implementing the C6 by literacy framework, you will see an icon for listening, speaking, reading, writing, and metalinguistic awareness. And as the kids are moving through the content, they're actually clipping or using a magnet or in remote instruction, they're seeing the icon on the screen so that they know that at that specific moment in the content learning, what they are leveraging to access that content learning is listening and speaking or focusing on reading. And it's so funny because teachers, you know, I've been a teacher for my whole life. You know, this is my 26th year, I think, in education. Some teachers will say, well, Jose, we use them all, all the time. And I'm like, back down. I get you. I hear you. But what one or two do you want the kids to own most at that moment? And so that's one of the big pieces and systems that teachers can um, organize and can implement so that kids own um, their content and their language um, learning I'm thinking of a school district in California who not only do they use the four plus one language domain icons, but they actually taught them to the kids. And then they also taught them to the parents. And so all of the parents have the four plus one icons, even in remote instruction. And so whether the kid is on the floor in the living room or in the kitchen table, they have the four plus one icons because they know those parents and kids know that the way that I learned anything in life is by engaging with that something, with that content, via listening, speaking, reading, writing, and making connections between the languages that are present in my language repertoire. Um, the other piece that's important for communicate is um, authentic instruction and in, in, the, in the language of instruction, because a lot of what we're doing is that we teach Spanish or French or Mandarin a la English. Like we take these literacy practices that are specifically for English literacy and we like force them down the throats of teachers that facilitate instruction in other languages. And I know that Actful is doing amazing work with world languages trying to move away from this idea. Um, we're doing the same in dual language programming where we are not using um, like a word wall in Spanish because word walls don't exist in Spanish. The reason we have a word wall in English is because it's such a, a, an opaque language that we focus from A to Z and that initial consonant sound is the most constant thing about instruction in English. In Spanish, we focus on vowels and syllables. And so if that's my way, if that's the appropriate way, then why should I have be, be, be teaching initial sound in Spanish rather than teaching Spanish a la Spanish? Um, and it doesn't mean that kids don't need um, environmental print support. They can, but instead of the word wall, I can have letras tramposas, la G, la J, la X, the C, the Q, and the K, um, the tricky H. I can focus on orthographic accents. I can focus on morphology, like some of those things that are more appropriate um, for the language of instruction. So that really is the communicate. So it's it's three pieces. It's um, authentic literacy and environmental practices, 
Um, it's scripting, language frames and language starters, and then the four plus one language domain icons to really make sure that the kids are owning their language and content integration. Yeah, thanks for wrapping that up so succinctly. There's a lot there. Um, I what really resonate a lot really resonates with me. But you, you talked about the differences in, in you know different techniques or strategies for teaching different languages, and it's like trying to fit a square peg into a, 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 a circle hole. It's not going to work every time. You have to figure it out. And to do that, you need you know experts or experts teaching those different languages to work together because not everybody's going to know all that information. Um, yeah. So just yeah, the, the the collaboration piece. Um, I feel like it's so important here as well. So important. Um, let's tell your, your listeners, not, if you have a word well in Spanish, please don't go and destroy it. Right now. <laughs> like I, just use it. But then maybe the next time that we, that we are about to create that, those spaces, um, let's instead have a space for, you know, letras tramposas, acentos ortográficos and the such. Yeah, and it, it, go, it goes to what you're talking about, about not taking that monolingual approach. I mean, it's all kind of a part of that. Like, what is best for this particular, um, you know, language or what is best for this particular teaching moment that I have? Um, yeah. You have to widen the lens a little bit. Um, okay, consider, which is the fifth C, um, which has to do with considering the way the students learn. Um, you know, I, I, I mentioned earlier that I kind of taught the way that I was taught. It was wrong. It, did, it just didn't work, particularly because I was a student who was being taught a foreign language. I was being taught Spanish with nobody who was a heritage speaker of Spanish, and the teacher was not a heritage speaker of Spanish. And I went and I tried to teach that way to a group of pretty diverse students, the majority of whom were heritage speakers of Spanish. And I walked in at 22 years old trying to teach that way. So you can imagine the nightmare that that was for a while. Um, so my question is like, how do you this 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 consider the way people students learn? How do you get past that temptation? It is I I don't know what it's like now to be a new teacher. I have not been a new teacher in a long time, um, but I imagine there's still that temptation to teach the way that you are trained. How do we get past it um, and and identify the different learning learning modalities necessary to ensure that we have these high levels of engagement that we're looking for? Sure. So it's, it's one of those pieces that I think all of us can relate to. Cause I was like, you Steve, like I am a very visual person. I, I want to see things, but I also want you to tell me, what do you want me to know? And I'll give it to you. Um, I'm very much a list person, even though I use my iPhone, I like to scratch things off or highlight things. And so that's the way that I lesson plan. Um, I think that one of the things that the teachers love about the professional learning is that they do go deeper into the ways, the different ways in which students learn. And then it's going to go back to that student ownership. Not only do we share the, the ways in which students learn, but we charge teachers to teach those to the kids. Um, there are some teachers that actually now place an icon for the different learning style, whether it's kinesthetic or visual or auditory or tactile on the lesson. And so the kids know today the lesson is going to be um, more geared towards tactile learners. But then tomorrow it'll have an icon for visual. And so the kids will know, you know what, today's my day. And so they realize that we're not one or the other, but they realize that we're a combination of some of these ways of learning. And so the teacher gives ownership to the kids so that I can say, um, hey, Mr. Steve, like we have not done visual in like a long time. Like what's up with that? Do you know what I mean? Because the kids are having the ownership over um, their own learning style and are able to advocate um, for practices that actually include me as a learner. And so we go through that piece as well. 
Yeah, and I like that also because on the flip side of things, you're also exposing students to the things that aren't necessarily their learning styles and not their strengths. And having that icon, that that just knowing that, oh, this is not my day today, but tomorrow might be my day. Because I think the mistake that we that we make is that we, well, I don't know say we, the mistake that I've made, I'll own it. Um, you know, you cater to students' learning styles so much that they don't ever get to take a risk or do something different. And then they don't ever get past, they don't ever get to that zone of proximal develop that productive struggle piece that we want to get to. So, but you need that support, which I guess would come in those icons and just knowing, hey, today we're doing the thing that might not work for you, but don't worry because we're going to get back. And I love that you said the student can absolutely call you out and say, you know, how come we haven't done the visual in a while? So that's... And and it's kind of important too, because then as a student, I, I know that I may have one that drives most of my learning, but I also know that the teacher and I want to make sure that I feel comfortable with all of them. And so I'm also getting stronger and understanding the other ways in which other um, of my student friends or colleagues, if we're in a space with educators, are also learning. And so it also helps with that sociocultural competence piece that, um, you know, seeing the similarities, seeing the differences, but seeing the differences of ways to connect. The other thing that I forgot to mention, but I want to make sure that I tackle is that in consider, we also um, tackle authentic by literacy assessments, because just like we teach a la Spanish, I'm sorry, we teach Spanish a la English, we also assess a la English. And so you have teachers that are being forced to assess like onset rhyme, when onset rhyme doesn't play um, an impactful role in Spanish initial literacy, um, or we're asking you know, kids to blend words where blending isn't a strategy that you would use in Spanish. And so making sure that we have assessments that are appropriate and that also take a look at the student's entire um, language repertoire, that's important. And so um, I did want to mention that piece because that's like a good kind of like, um, there are a lot of bombazos in that consider when we talk about assessment and really assessing really assessing if the district level assessments are a la English or are, or are at a la monolingual or a multilingual, right? Like, are, are they actually doing what the research says we should be doing in terms of assessing our emergent bilingual students? I'm really glad you mentioned assessment there. It's, it's something that I've, I keep wanting to ask you about, but I just, it's such a huge topic, but I'm glad you sort of brought it up um, as part of um, the consider piece because I think that's important. Yeah. So the 60th commit, and I'm not going to give really any background, except I'm going to say that I've heard you say, I think that it's the most important. Why? Yeah. So the, the commit is in actually in every C. Um, our team decided to put it as the last C, but from the moment that we start talking about content and language and culture integration, it's about commitment. And it's about committing in collaboration with the students that we serve um, to utilize whatever privilege, whatever access we have and create access to that privilege for others, which is completely different. I mean, we're talking about sociocultural competence and critical consciousness. Um, and that the students are owning that, that understanding. Um, I mentioned that I was a principal before. So the second school that I was a dual language principal at, I had the opportunity to open from the ground up um, in a collaborative fashion with our team. And um, we had an equity and social justice vertical team represented um, with folks from every grade level. The kids, whether they were in pre-K or in fifth grade, it was a pre-K five school. Um, they all wanted their Defender of Equity and Social Justice little cheap 
plastic bracelet porque querían ser defensores de la equidad y justicia social. Because, right. yeah, because the entire community function around the idea that whatever we have is about creating access to it for others. And um, those conversations cannot happen unless it's a daily thing. Um, as you entered the school, um, there was a main hallway that, that you that you turned to and the art teacher who was phenomenal, uh, Mr. Suji Mura, he was a member of the equity and social uh, and justice vertical team. The kids actually created a mural every school year. It was different, but focused completely on how can we be of service to others. And so when you have four-year-olds um, thinking in that way, then that doesn't go away. Like as they move to fourth and fifth grade and middle school, they understand that their goal in life is to serve others. And I mean, what a beautiful thing that could be. Yeah, absolutely. And a great way to kind of wrap up the six C's with that commit piece. And as you said, it's a part of all of them. And I think it brings us back to the whole um, beginning here of what we were talking about, which is, you know, how do we tackle um, these issues of social justice and lead to to, to the progress that we want on anti-bias and anti-racism. Um, so that's a really nice way to kind of wrap up this six season. Like I said, we've just sort of scraped the surface of a lot of this. Hopefully the conversation on this has inspired people to take the next step. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you, as I ask most people who come on, um, if there is a book or other resource that has influenced you either personally or professionally that you'd like to share with folks. Sure. So I thought about it quite a bit because I love to read and I have a lot of resources that I love, but I narrowed it down to two. I couldn't one, Steve. So you have to nobody can me, nobody can do you have one. to give me the hook up here. So the first one is called Culturally Sustaining Pedagogies, Teaching and Learning for Justice in a Changing World. And it's edited by um, Paris and Ali. And it's a book of essays, but really taking that important work of culturally responsive pedagogy. Um, which is valuable, but also um, we can take it even deeper to culturally sustaining pedagogy, um, which really aligns much more beautifully with the C6. And um, we, we tackle culturally responsive pedagogy, but actually for the book, which is coming out in 2021, the C6 book is coming out, um, we actually will take it to culturally sustaining and then the other book, um, because I know that I, I shared this one language repertoire and mobilizing what we need based on the context, is the Translanguaging Classroom by um, one of my idols, Dr. Ophelia Garcia, Susana Ibarra Johnson, and Kate Seltzer. And I really, I, I feel like this book is so important because it puts on, it flips everything that we've ever understood about language learning um, and does it in a very, very um, culturally sustaining way. It's the reason why I'm able to say pos and parquear and planching um, because of the work of these folks. Um, and so those two books, awesome, awesome resources. Great. And we'll link to those. And I appreciate you selecting two books on two topics that we just kind of barely talked about and that we didn't really define for anybody. Uh, we just kind of assumed people knew it. So if you if you you know are, are struggling with those, then those are two great books and we'll link to them, as I said. Um, and finally, how, like, you know, again, we've just scraped the surface. There's a lot of good stuff out there. I watched a lot of great videos of you from, I don't remember which conference it was, but from one going through these C's, so there's other ways to look at it. Um, there's lots of print stuff as well, but what's the best way for people to learn one about just the work that you're doing in general and two about um, the, this framework. 
Sure. So if people want to reach out, um, the website is www.drcosemedina.com. Um, and there's a list of all of the districts um, throughout the United States, as well as internationally, that we are providing support for. Um, not just dual language, but also monolingual settings. Um, as I mentioned, folks are using that. I'm also really active on social media. Um, once upon a time, I dreamed of being a telenovela actor. Steve, I don't know if you can talk about Un poquito dramático, ¿verdad? Un poquito dramático. I'm a little bit dramatic. And so you can find me on um, Twitter, Jose Medina Junior 89, Instagram and TikTok, um, Jose Medina 1000. I started TikTok, Steve, right before, right when COVID-19 began, because I wanted to connect with um, folks that were educators, but also beyond. And um, I actually had um, a, two colleagues, but one specifically that texted me and said, Jose, you're like a language researcher. Why are you dancing on TikTok? And I was taken aback by that question, but then I texted back because I'm a really good dancer. I went to a lot of quinceañeras. And so <laughs> I can be a researcher who also dances on TikTok. And so on social media, I post every Monday, uh, hashtag Medina Monday message, which are short um, one to three minute videos on the four plus one. Um, there's videos on content objective writing, on language objective writing. So I share a lot on social media in terms of um, biliteracy instructional support. Great. We'll link to both of those as well. And I have seen um, a lot of the stuff that you do on social media. I have been lacking on social media lately. This whole COVID thing has actually made me kind of shut down a little bit. I don't know why or how. I'm okay with it. But I, I do have seen the stuff that you've posted and I would absolutely um, 100% recommend it. And with that, Dr. Jose Medina, thank you so much for everything you do, for joining us today, for your clear passion, and for your um, kind of no BS approach to all this stuff. I really appreciate it. It's kind of a breath of fresh air. I feel like you know, I asked you some pretty pointed questions and you gave um, answers that were not only compelling, but also I think right from your heart and from the heart of a lot of the teachers that, that are serving the students that we care most about. So really appreciate your work. Thank you so much. And thanks for the opportunity. I really, really uh, appreciate it. Gracias por todo. Eh? Gracias por su trabajo también. De nada. Hasta luego. Adios. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.